This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, journalist Elle Hunt on why thousands of people are embracing the age of anti-ambition. Writer Aaron Hicklin meets with John Cho, or as you might know him, Harold of Harold and Kumar, or Sulu in the new Star Trek on Breaking the Mold and laughing at stereotypes. And finally, sociologist and author Kelsey Burke strips away the pretense after stripping off for naked yoga. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, from high flyers quitting their jobs to Beyonce singing about work-life balance, people are recalibrating their lives and relationships to their jobs in order to embrace a new identity. So what's changed, asks El Hunt. Read by Emma Kaler. Until 2020, I lived by five-year plans. I had set my career track when I was still a child, racing through school to get to uni, then uni to get to work. I was often described as driven, approvingly by teachers and bosses, and pejoratively by ex-boyfriends, who perhaps felt they had got the raw end of the deal. When I was 28 years old, I started seeing a therapist to find out how to work more and better. She and I discussed my career more than we did my childhood, or my mental health, or my love life. I didn't want a partner, I told her, because they would just be a distraction. She might have challenged me had I not stopped seeing her because of the pandemic. By then I had been freelance for six months. Through lockdown, I worked all day, most days, and several nights through to dawn. At first, there was a perverse solace to this. I was still making progress, even though I was stuck in one place. Then, one September morning, after yet another all-nighter, I came to a sudden, painful stop. My burnout was especially distressing for being self-inflicted. I felt bewildered and betrayed, as if my trusty North Star had led me astray. Gingerly, I started interrogating my ambition, 
What was I seeking from work? And where might this feeling be better sourced? By my 30th birthday, in March 2021, the version of myself who had organised her entire life around her career felt like a stranger. I was still productive, but no longer at the expense of my health, happiness or relationships. It was as if the fire that had been fueling me for half my life was down to a smoulder, and for the first time, I was content to let it go out. It turns out I was not alone. This a thing called the age of anti-ambition. Over the past two and a half years, many people have taken stock of how they spend their time, where they find meaning, their hopes for the future, and found work wanting. Hundreds of thousands have quit their jobs, most to take early retirement or live off savings, shrinking the UK labour force by an estimated 1 million workers. In the US, 2.8% of employed people resigned in May alone, only just down from the peak of 3% last year. Those who can't afford to opt out of work altogether, meanwhile, are less invested in it. In one survey, 37% of respondents said their job had become less important to them through the pandemic, with many citing burnout or a change in values. In pop culture too, this shift is evident. In just two years, we've gone from celebrating hustle culture to condemning it. As with the backlash to Kim Kardashian's declaration that nobody wants to work these days. Even Beyonce, a self-professed workaholic who's spoken of going without food, sleep and bodily relief so she can slay all day, is now singing on Break My Soul about quitting her job and building a new foundation around love, fun and rest. For some of us, this amounts to a new identity. I don't have the titles, benefits package or authority I maybe once had, Rob Weatherhead tells me, but there is no money in the world you could offer me to go back to chasing them. For nearly half his life, Weatherhead, 40, climbed the ranks in advertising, all the way to director level. That meant long days, regular travel to Manchester and London from his home in Bolton, and extended periods away from his three young children. At the time, he accepted this as the price of his ambition. It was always about the next thing, whether it was a promotion or another opportunity, he says. It's difficult to see beyond that when you're in that world. Weatherhead remembers leaving the London office late, in the lead-up to a big pitch, to find about 20 others still at work too. They probably had commitments, children, partners, he says in disbelief. I was just like, what are you doing here at 11 o'clock at night? In an attempt to control his time, in 2014, Weatherhead left his job to become a freelance consultant, but remained at the beck and call of his clients. I was still chasing, well, whatever it was I was chasing. He sounds genuinely at a loss. Probably progression in some form. It took the pandemic and losing all his contracts for eight weeks for him to recalibrate. He now works three minutes walk from his house, does the school run each morning and is learning jiu-jitsu alongside his children, aged 10, 8 and 5. The younger two, he notes with obvious pride, won't remember a time when he wasn't there for them. He has also set up a wine business with a friend, but it's just something that we enjoy doing. His past life now strikes him as bizarre, 
For me, without sounding grandiose, it's about looking forward. In 20 years' time, will I be happy about the decisions I've made? Will I still have strong bonds with my children? Research by the US Families and Work Institute suggests that most people stop jostling for promotion at age 35, often coinciding with childcare responsibilities. But the recalibration we're seeing now is more than this inevitable individual drift. It appears to be a cultural U-turn. Julia Hobsbawm, a consultant and author of The Nowhere Office, calls it the Great Reevaluation, a large-scale reckoning that will shape the future of work. It isn't so much that people have less ambition, but that their ambition is changing from being about career success first to work-life balance, she says. Dissatisfaction with modern work, rigid hierarchies, bad management, boundaries that only flex one way, had been mounting for decades, says Hobsbawm. The upheaval of 2020 not only revealed our jobs to be more flexible than many of us had been led to believe, we were also reminded of the importance of health, hobbies and relationships. Our careers often seeming hollow by comparison. Now, says Hobsbawm, there's a widespread sense of carpe diem. No one can just go back as before because we are all in some way profoundly changed, she says. What people want less of now is pointless presenteeism, stress, toxic workplaces and the commute. People want autonomy and flexibility as much as they want promotion and professional careers, or more. For those high up on the corporate ladder, however, it can be a dizzying climb down. Katie Mantua-George, who's 38, spent 15 years working in recruitment for companies including Barclays, Credit Suisse, Rothschild and AIG. It was fun, she tells me. She enjoyed the travel, the camaraderie, even the pressure. I was always fishing for the next promotion, really wanting to prove myself. George had good boundaries, creative outlets and strong relationships. But when I ask if she ever burnt out, she's unequivocal. Oh, definitely. She felt the burden of representation too. Being one of the only women of colour in leadership at most of the companies I worked, it quite often fell to me to have a say. And it's draining, to be honest. I want to make a difference. But it's extra work. By 2020, George was working at Amazon, leading a team of nearly 40 people across 12 cities, and had well and truly eclipsed the financial instability that she had weathered growing up. It made me feel like I'd made it she says. But the corporate world was starting to take a toll. I got to the point where I couldn't sleep. My heart was in overdrive, George says. She went to see her doctor, who told her she was overworked and gave her a heart rate monitor to wear for three days. This health scare prompted a life overhaul. She enlisted a coach, relocated with her job to Cape Town to be close to family, and later took a three-month unpaid sabbatical. When it came time to return to the office, George's team had evolved and she realised that she had too. She quit last August and has since pursued work that feels meaningful. She has written a children's book about being mixed race, advised on inclusive recruiting strategy, coached corporate types in empathic leadership and taught meditation to slow everyone else down too.
It's not been easy to turn down opportunities or to adjust to the step down in status and income, but I feel so much more me. She doesn't start work before 10am or carry on past 5pm, does yoga daily and spends quality time with family. Ambition used to mean a bigger paycheck, a bigger brand, a more senior position. Now I'd actually rather go and watch the sunset. Ben Franklin, director of the Centre for Progressive Policy, sees this daily. Across many sectors, people are wanting to work flexibly and employers are struggling to meet that demand, he says. To Hobsbawm, the resistance to return into the office, despite government exhortations, is also revealing. Managers who try to insist on presenteeism, from Elon Musk to Jacob Rees-Mogg, look anachronistic, she says. Workers are voting with their feet. The transition to hybrid working could see inequality worsen, however, Hobsbawm warns, with only in-demand talent able to dictate their terms. But there is one powerful force hastening the end of ambition and the beginning of a new era of work, Gen Z. Speaking of ambition, says Maeve Halligan cheerily when I call her at noon, I've just woken up. The 19-year-old is back home in Saffron Walden from Bristol, where she is studying languages. Unlike older millennials such as myself, who may have had a rosy view of work before being disappointed, Zoomers have only ever known stagnant wages, insecure contracts, sudden redundancies and crushing student debt. Factor in the pandemic, the Ukraine war and the climate, and you almost believe ambition could be to your detriment, because there are so many things working against you, says Halligan. The world seems incredibly fickle. There's this sense of... I'll just get there when I get there. Halligan is passionate and principled. She doesn't eat meat, buy new clothes or use social media and says she can't get enough of learning about the world. Had she been born 10 years earlier, Halligan might have grown up a five-year planner like me. I really value my degree. I've always worked hard, she says. But to plan some huge structure of what you're going to do, you just feel that it's likely to crumble underneath you. It's sad, Halligan agrees, but no surprise. Her father, the economist Liam Halligan, wrote a book about the housing market and why my, Maeve's, generation will never buy a house. She's had jobs since she was 13, but worries that she will never earn enough. A hardback book is 20 quid, a pint is a fiver. So many pleasures in life are so expensive. Many Gen Zers are well-versed in anti-capitalist theory and broadcast their apathy ambivalence or anger on social media. I don't want to hustle, said a 20-something TikToker last year. I simply want to live my life slowly, lay down in a bed of moss with my lover and enjoy the rest of my existence. Many of Gen Z feel the same. In Deloitte's recent survey of more than 23,000 workers aged 18 to 38, work-life balance was found to be their top priority when choosing an employer and 75% preferred remote or hybrid patterns. It reflects what I found myself repeating in conversation over the past year, that the goals that used to spur me on now matter less than leading a nice life. That has meant revising my ambition, from becoming a best-selling author by 32, at the latest, to recapturing my love for writing. Halligan also gained clarity. During lockdown, she was studying for her A-levels, I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life. I didn't see anyone. I felt terrible, she says. 
but she also altered clothes for friends, spent hours playing violin and read a novel a week. The only way that I could keep my ambitions was to scale them down, Halligan says. Now she has just the one. This huge, huge, almost indignant desire to be happy. There's lots of things that people my age are going to have to struggle through and settle for, but that's something that I feel like I can do for myself, Halligan says. People think happiness is a privilege or a byproduct of success, but it can also be a goal. That was a bigger paycheck. I'd rather watch the sunset. Is this the end of ambition? By L. Hunt. Read by Emma Kaler. Next. Actor and author John Cho was the first Asian American to take the lead in a Hollywood thriller. Now, moving nimbly between genres, he takes on a new kind of role as the lead in the independent film Don't Make Me Go, which crosses the rarely, in Hollywood terms, touched upon topic of Asian love. Aaron Hicklin sits down with him to discuss deconstructing stereotypes. Read by June Yoon. A telling snapshot from the young life of John Cho. He's at college, majoring in English literature, when a drama company commandeers the campus theater to mount a production of Woman Warrior, based on the best-selling memoir by Maxine Hong Kingston. There is, however, a caveat. In return for the use of the theater, the production company is required to cast a few college students. Enter Cho, who scores a small role. The die is cast. It was the first time I met professional Asian actors, Cho recalls. Frankly, I didn't know they existed. I guess I'd seen some Asians on television, but in my head, they were just people recruited off the street or something. I didn't know you could work all year and do that. Cho, now 50, and I are sitting in a nondescript room in a midtown hotel in New York where all morning he has been answering questions from groups of writers about his new film, Don't Make Me Go, a small indie with a lot of heart and an unexpected twist in the tale. Cho is tired, having arrived from L.A. the night before. We sit in chairs opposite each other, while a publicist lurks in the gloom behind me, but directly in Cho's sightline. But it turns out that even when John Cho is tired, he thrums with a bright, nervous energy. And once in his stride, he can take you by surprise, kicking up a dust storm of acute observations. Where others like to simplify, he prefers to complicate. Like someone re-scrambling the squares of a Rubik's Cube, determined to figure out its logic. He navigates questions with the same care and scrutiny that he's applied to his work avoiding the industry's tendency to pigeonhole by moving nimbly between genres, from comedy to artsy indie to blockbuster and back again. For someone who came to fame by playing Milf Guy Number 2 in American Pie before his breakout in the gross-out stoner comedy Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, it's an impressive evolution. Then again, Harold and Kumar was not your typical gross-out stoner comedy, deploying a classic American narrative, the road trip, to subvert and obliterate racial stereotypes. The timing, three years into the so-called War on Terror, coincided with the growing backlash to the war in Iraq. 
People are receptive to the movie's witty but unambiguous critique of what we now call white privilege. Its posture towards race is to laugh at it, says Cho, instead of elevating it. It took the stereotypes and turned the sock inside out. Looking back, I think we were ahead of our time a little bit. Turning the sock inside out is something that Cho spends a lot of time thinking about. In America, everyone sees your race first, but that's not the way you feel, he says. I never feel Asian, necessarily. It's the world that makes me think about it. Early in the COVID pandemic, Cho wrote an opinion piece for the LA Times in which he described having to warn his parents to be careful at a moment when Asian Americans were subject to a wave of attacks. The pandemic is reminding us that our belonging is conditional, Cho wrote. One moment, we are Americans. The next, we are all foreigners who brought the virus here. Although it won him plaudits, he's ambivalent about being a spokesperson for Asian Americans. I don't think I'm informed enough as an actor, and I don't know the ins and outs of policy, but when something strikes me close to the bone, I'll do it for myself, he says. I don't consider what I'm doing as some kind of clarion call. It's a self-serving expression. The arc of Cho's career mirrors America's post-September 11th reckoning. By the time of the Harold and Kumar 2008 sequel, Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay, people were ready for change. Barack Obama won his bid for the White House six months later. Cho's Harold and Kumar co-star, Cal Penn, left Hollywood behind to work in the Obama White House, while Cho landed the iconic role of Sulu in the reboot of the Star Trek movie franchise. He'd grown up watching the television series and was struck by the singular fact that Sulu was played by George Takei, among the very few Asian faces on TV. He was the only one, he says. And it was a really thoughtful show. Even then, I was like, the special effects are hokey, but the ideas are pristine. I knew they were trying to say meaningful things. When the producers of Star Trek began casting for a new Sulu, Cho quickly realized how badly he wanted the role. That was the last time I said, I don't know what I'm going to do if I lose out on this part, he says. I was like, I'm going to start weeping. Maybe I'll quit. If I don't get this, the world's going to end. Why was it so critical? Cho had long wanted to do a sci-fi picture and to work with director J.J. Abrams. But it was primarily because of the totemic weight of playing a role made famous by a pioneering Asian actor. Although slowly changing, leading roles for Asian Americans in film and television are still scarce. Takei had proved that it didn't have to be that way. It was a mantle that I wanted from George Takei, Cho says. I wanted the baton. When he threw it back, I wanted to be the one to grab it. Star Trek turned Cho into a bona fide box office draw. There have been three movies to date, with a fourth untitled sequel currently in pre-production. But in recent years, he's gravitated to smaller, less showy independent movies to showcase his repertoire. Films like the elegant, emotionally complex Columbus, in which Cho plays the son of a critically ill architect father. Or the 2018 mystery thriller Searching, an unexpected hit in which a father attempts to track down his missing daughter. Now there's Don't Make Me Go, 
which recasts the well-worn tropes of the American road movie through the prism of a single parent, Max, Cho, and his mixed-race teenage daughter, Wally, played by newcomer Mia Isaac. Cho, who has a daughter of his own, gives a beautifully modulated performance, authentic and true, as a father trying to temper his anxiety for his daughter with respect for her growing independence. The attraction of the movie was this elemental bond between father and child, he says. It's weird how we can divide ourselves in so many ways, when the most overwhelmingly important parts of our lives, something we have in common with every human being that's ever lived, is wanting to do right by the people we love. And yet we're bickering over everything else that is so much less important to each one of us. In Don't Make Me Go, the purpose of the road trip is for Max to spend quality time with Wally before he succumbs to a recently diagnosed cancer. Along the way, father and daughter bicker, reconcile, and deepen their relationship against the rolling backdrop of America's vastness. In fact, New Zealand, where the movie was filmed, and a soundtrack of Iggy Pop's The Passenger. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to John Cho. Although Don't Make Me Go plays down the virtues of its multiracial casting, it's rare to see a movie in which neither of the leads is white. The casting decisions are not lost on Cho. He was drawn to the script in part for the opportunity to play an Asian character with a fully-fledged romantic life. In America, there's scant representation of Asian love, he says. That was really important to me. 
It goes against the grain of what we see Asians do on screen, which is part of the attraction for me always. Cho isn't wrong. Numbers compiled by the University of Southern California suggest that 58% of Asian men on screen are presented as devoid of romantic attachments. I don't want this to sound whiny, but we have been seen as less than men for so long, Cho says. I fully appreciate that Asian men who are younger than me may be living in a different world, but certainly my generation was dismissed by larger society so much, and I just know from all my friends that they had a breaking point. And when it happened, you didn't want to be around to see it, because the clenched fist in the pocket was often literal. It could come flying out. It was definitely a young man thing but it was also informed by a culture that doesn't value us very much. We grew up with that, and it took me some time to untangle it and to calm down and to not think that people are after me. Much of this is generational. Cho has noticed that his father's generation, men who grew up in Korea, have thicker skins. You can call them every ethnic slur in the book, he says. It doesn't matter to them. They didn't grow up here. I was thinking people in Asia don't really think of themselves as Asian, per se, because they're the majority. They just are. Just as a white person walks around without needing to put an adjective before white. At university, he was similarly struck by Hawaiian students he met. I was like, these guys, why are they different? They look like me, but they're different. And then I realized it's because they grew up in the majority and they had a different posture towards the world. I said to myself, I need some of what they're drinking. Cho moved to the United States with his family when he was six years old, settling first in Texas, but then frequently on the move. His favorite books were Laura Ingalls Wilder series about pioneer-era settlers, Little House on the Prairie, tales that celebrated endurance and resilience, but were also very white. What could they offer to a young Korean boy in 1970s America? Actually, it was the immigrant that made me relate so much to those books. I was reading about this family in a covered wagon all alone traveling across America, he says. And I thought, this is us. Except it's a Ford Pinto. They were literally alone in these unsettled territories, and we felt similarly alone in that we were apart from our extended family. And, in another sense, we were often the only Asians around. Melting Pot America felt far from the Houston suburbs of the 1970s. Cho recalls bringing home a notice from his school announcing the date of the annual American Dress Day. If you need to ask what American dress means in Texas, you've not watched enough westerns. My mom, a Korean immigrant who has just arrived here and doesn't speak English very well, has to get cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and a western shirt for her son to wear to school. Cho smiles wryly. So, that was definitely culture shock right there. Last year, Cho published a young adult novel about the L.A. riots of 1992 that were sparked by the police beating of Rodney King and the related shooting of a black teenage girl by a Korean shopkeeper who wrongly assumed she was stealing orange juice. It's a complicated story of race and community with no real heroes. 
Suffice to say, it was another exercise in Cho-style complexity. I'm not sure why I needed to go back to that event, but it seemed like it was just a part of our Genesis story, Cho says, and it lays out a lot of things that I've been thinking about lately. How are we here? What are the forces that shape the conditions of the world we're living in right now? Right now, our discourse has become very slogan-based, and I often feel like it sounds good, but it doesn't completely work because it's simplified too much, to the point that you can't really apply it. It's not useful anymore. We have to actually take it apart to understand it, and the LA riots was one event that I thought could use some disassembly and examination. Cho is deeply skeptical of social media's tendency to reduce complex issues to rhetoric. If you were to physicalize social media, it would be entering an auditorium full of strangers two or three times a day and reading a sentence into a microphone. And then everyone would write down comments on that sentence and you would read all their comments. Let's do this every day. What does it do to your brain? Is it good for you? It would be absurd, transparently unhealthy, to feel the need to rush into auditoriums and shout our opinions at people. What slogans does he think have simplified a complex question? And here I feel Cho shifting his stride. His voice rises and quickens, the canter turns into a gallop. I still don't understand why people are punching elderly Asians in the face, he says. I can't get a handle on that, but I also think stop Asian hate, a popular social media hashtag, Is that right? Is that what's going on? What is the dynamic at play here? I feel it's a slogan that may or may not be useful. I'm not sure that hate is what's behind it. Is it the non-recognition of our humanity? Is it scapegoating? It's some combination of things. I don't know that Asians experience hate in the way that, say, Mexican-Americans experience hate in America. There's a component of hate But it's really easy for people to say, I don't hate Asians, so this isn't my problem. There is no problem. But there's something going on across the nation, because it's happening all over. And I want to know what it is. I want to know what the root cause is, but you put a slogan to it, and then you don't have to examine it anymore. Instead, Cho says he'd prefer to reframe the conversation as a question. What's happening? We could ask what's happening a million times, and that's fine with me, he says. We'll come up with a different answer each time, as long as we keep interrogating it. But the instant you put a label on it and call it something, then you don't have to examine it anymore. Maybe for some people that's good, because you could say, I'm against it. But as well as being against it, what you have to do is examine it. And keep burrowing and burrowing under it, and say, what's happening? And then when we learn what's happening, how do we prevent it from happening again? Because it keeps happening every 30 years. What is the root cause, and when are we going to solve it? Cho's eloquent, raw soliloquy hangs in the air. And then a voice from behind us breaks the silence. It's the publicist. I'm sorry to interrupt. We're over time, she says. The energy leaks from the room. Behind us, three people sit in chairs facing us. Cho smiles awkwardly. Getting incendiary, he says. Sorry. We stand up to shake hands. Before I exit through the hotel and into the bright chaotic street, 
wishing that actors would get incendiary more often. That was It's Weird How We Divide Ourselves in So Many Ways. Actor John Cho on Star Trek, social media, and tackling racial stereotypes by Aaron Hicklin. Read by June Yoon. Finally, in a bid to deepen her research around the battles over pornography, sociologist and author of The Pornography Wars, Kelsey Burke, decided to immerse herself completely in one particular practice. Here's what she found. Read by Emma Kayla. Naked Yoga. I circled the words in my conference program and flagged them with three question marks. Should I go? What would it be like? Was it a ploy for exhibitionism at the conference I was attending, intended for sex connoisseurs and sex professionals? I googled to learn more, and the top results were pornographic websites. I tried, instead, Naked Yoga New York, and that search brought up studios that offer the practice. Thanks, Brooklyn. It's a niche market, to be sure, but Naked Yogis point out that unlike other Western fads, e.g. goat yoga, The practice originated centuries ago from Hatha Yoga and Tantric Buddhism. As a sociologist, I had spent the past four years studying debates over internet pornography and I was attending the annual Sex Down South conference to learn how progressive activists, educators and sex workers talked about porn. I wanted to learn about the general culture that surrounds what I describe as the porn positive movement, a broad effort to promote the rights and well-being of porn performers embrace sexual expression, and oppose censorship. Sex Down South offered a reprieve from the usual social paradigm where white men occupy the centre and are surrounded by others on the margins. Instead, this event was led by queer-identified people of colour and white people like me were the definite minority. It seemed that naked yoga fell in line with the other sessions at the conference, like meditation and reiki, that merged ancient religious traditions with a broad understanding of sexual health and well-being. Sitting in my hotel room the night before, I tried to imagine myself in a bare all downward dog and blushed at the thought. I had been attending yoga classes regularly since my early 20s, but never naked. Still, I was comfortable with my naked body. In my mid-30s, I'd overcome the body issues that plagued my younger self. I had years of practice bearing my chest in public as I openly breastfed my two babies. I was no swimsuit model. My then three-year-old called my postpartum belly squashy with much affection, but was afforded an ease in my skin thanks to my relative proximity to idealised beauty standards. I am white, cisgender, relatively thin and able-bodied. For years, I'd practised yoga as my preferred form of exercise because it was the only time I could fully leave behind what Buddhists call the monkey mind and let my body take over. I preferred heated classes and often left the studio drenched in sweat, feeling like I felt after a long, hard cry. After both, my body and mind felt tired and calm. Off the mat, I understood and agreed with the critiques of the American yoga industry which profits from a religious tradition and culture that is not its own. But on the mat, I let that go, along with my to-do list and worries. Would I be able to do the same unclothed? The room was lit with twinkle lights, 
a pleasant reprieve from the harsh overhead fluorescence of the other conference sessions. As the room filled with other participants, it immediately felt like a different kind of space than both my yoga studio at home and the rest of the conference. There were no tank tops with the Lululemon logo or Spiritual Gangster written on the front. There were also no sexy jumpsuits or stiletto heels like at the conference's evening reception the night before. Not knowing anyone else at the conference, I sat cross-legged and silent. Even though the room was cold, the air conditioning not yet tempered by the room full of bodies, I found myself sweating. I was nervous. Am I really going to take my clothes off in front of these people? Coming of age as a woman in the United States, I was instilled with very specific messages about my naked body and who should see it. I learned that, post-puberty, my body was inherently sexual, an object that enticed. Indeed, this is the premise and feminist critique of much mainstream pornography. In porn, naked women's bodies are on display for the pleasure of others, not themselves. Outside pornography is no better, though as women have little power over when and how their bodies are sexualized, In my own life, I opted for some semblance of control by distancing myself from heterosexuality. I stopped dating cisgender men around the same time I took up yoga practice. The instructor introduced herself a few minutes after the session was scheduled to begin. She was a robust white woman in her 50s, with long grey hair and a soothing cadence to her voice wearing a sage green linen top and loose matching pants. She explained that to practice yoga naked meant to remove the constraints we impose on our bodies to better access the divine within us. She told us that today's class would be a yin practice, meaning gentle movements, and that we could move through the postures in whatever state of dress or undress that we felt like. As we began, she asked us to consider how our clothing felt on our bodies, and I became forcefully aware of the discomfort of my jeans. She invited us to remove a top layer of clothing, and I peeled them off. The sensation of air meeting my thighs was delicious. After more poses and invitations to remove clothing, I stopped fretting about my state of undress and started tuning in to the instructor's prompts to bring awareness to both breath and body. Eventually, I peeked beyond my mat and was surprised that everyone around me was naked, or nearly so. I hadn't noticed people taking their clothes off. When we entered the tree pose, I was able to fully take in the room. These were not the bodies we see in commercial porn, or magazine covers, or in TV and movies. These were ordinary bodies, of various ages, shades, shapes and sizes. We were beautiful there in that room all of us awkwardly balancing on our mats. Amid my research on battles over pornography and my own early experiences showing my naked body to others, it felt powerful, almost cleansing, to be naked in a room full of these strangers with no sexual charge, where any pretense was stripped away along with our clothes. After the conference ended a few days later, I returned to my regular life a thousand miles away with a notebook full of handwritten observations relevant to my research. These were important data for the book I would eventually write, but what preoccupied my thoughts as I typed up my field notes were those 45 minutes of naked yoga. It had shifted how I understood what I was doing at the conference in the first place and broke apart my own assumptions and stereotypes I carried with me 
however unintentionally, into my research. I started studying pornography debates after being brought up in a Christian church and developing my career researching conservative evangelicals and sexuality. Religion was the root to this project, and it was everywhere in the anti-porn movement. But I thought I left religion behind when I entered porn-positive spaces. Even though, as a sociologist of religion, I knew that the religious left has been advocating for progressive sexual politics for decades. I was still allowing evangelical leaders and politicians to take up all the space when it came to moral claims about pornography. There were some good reasons for these stereotypes. The people I interviewed who were politically conservative and devoutly Christian opposed porn. The people who were politically liberal and not religious tended to be more sympathetic to it. The messaging at events similarly towed the party line. The anti-porn conferences I attended were led by religious conservatives. Even non-religious events had evangelical sponsors and spokespersons. Porn-positive events were secular and often anti-religious, explicitly condemning the mission of conservative Christian politicians and leaders attempting to regulate sexuality. But this doesn't mean that the porn-positive movement is absent moral and spiritual principles. The sex workers, activists and educators I interviewed produced porn outside commercial studios and advocated for the creation and consumption of what some called ethical porn. A common saying was sex work is work, meaning that sex workers deserve fair labour practices. But while virtually everyone I interviewed on the porn positive side would agree with this sentiment, so too did they agree that sex work was a special kind of work. Adjectives varied, some called it a service, some called it art, some called it political resistance, and many, explicitly or implicitly, described it as sacred, a kind of work that offers something profound, contemplative, even divine. As one activist, who identifies as black and Buddhist, told me the potential of independent pornography is that it can promote the message that all bodies are worthy of love. I am worthy of love. I am worthy of care. I am worthy of healing. Stripped down to its core, the porn-positive movement I studied bore little resemblance to the glossy, airbrushed images of commercial porn. What I found instead was a profound respect for the body and the work it does, for pleasure, healing, for life itself. Of course, in the world of pornography, this is complicated by the industry's dark side, the potential for abuse and coercion, and the overwhelming presence of harmful stereotypes of women, especially women of colour, and other minoritised groups. But it's not so different from any industry in the business of bodies, yoga included. All must reckon with the influence of capitalism, the priority of profits, and the normalisation and idealisation of the bodies of some over others. In today's political debates, we often fall into dichotomies, mutually exclusive and opposite categories of the right versus the left. Pundits describe one side as guided by religion and faith, and the other by science and reason. But these are false dichotomies. Naked yoga is but one example of how both sides in debates over sexual politics see their position as a sacred calling. For me, it was a religious experience as much as I have ever known. Our nakedness was a reminder of what we have in common, 
as we navigate how best to live and relate to one another in our shared social world. That was What I Learned When I Tried Naked Yoga by Kelsey Burke. Read by Emma Kaler. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Kayla and June Yoon and presented by me, Savannah Oyoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.